Today on The Real Deal on Success, join me as I reconnect with an old dear friend, Mr. Shane Keister, a brilliant, brilliant musician and one of the most talented and nicest guys on the planet. Learn from him how he has pivoted, how he has learned to stay in the music industry for multiple, multiple decades. Cue the intro. Welcome to The Real Deal, where we get real about what it takes to succeed. Whether it's wealth, health, relationships, or finding your purpose, we talk to the masters to uncover the secrets to defying the odds and creating your own rock star legacy. I'm Doug, and after working on multiple Grammy-winning records as an author, transformational speaker, and your personal translightenment coach, I'm committed to your growth and success. And now, here's the real deal. All right. Well, we have such an incredible, incredible gift here, but before we begin... Today's episode of The Real Deal On is brought to you by GuidedHypnotic.com. Are you feeling stressed out, riddled with anxiety, perhaps day terrors have been plaguing you? Then you need your free Guided Hypnotic Meditation. So go ahead to GuidedHypnotic.com now and download your free Guided Hypnotic Meditation. I sponsor myself. So, (laughs) (laughs) So... A dear friend, incredible, incredible human being and musician whom I've known. We've been buddies for well over two decades. Um, And uh, that is pretty incredible considering we both look so good. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I can't claim that, but you go ahead. No, you can. But let me me share a little bit about this uh, incredible human. Shane Keister figured out how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb at the age of three. Too tiny to actually reach the piano keys, he picked out the notes by reaching up and feeling for them with his fingertips. Thus began his lifetime of music. He's created music hand-in-hand with legends of of the recording industry, ranging from Elvis Presley, Paul McCartney, to Arif Martin and... Amit Erdogan. His diversity as a player, arranger, producer, and composer is amazing. Pop to classical, jazz to R&B, country to alternative, appearing in one form or another on many thousands of recording. Recording. So I, I, when I was reading this, dude. Yeah, that's, that is so... I remember the guy that wrote that for me. I mean, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> well, so truth be told, uh, for those listening and watching, um, it's probably, you know, a thousand words. And the amount of incredible records and experiences you've had is incredible. I remember one of the things you did that um, you, you would do just for fun when you were playing is you could play out of tune on purpose and, yeah, <laughs> and I know, like for for us music geeks, when we see or hear what you did, you'd be like, "How do you do that?" <laughs> Quite painful. Yet you did it with such grace and elegance. And I know for <laughs> for most people, people are kind of going, "Who cares? What, what does that even mean?" But that was the level of talent that you would express and expose. That was just like, man, that like to be able to do that the way you did it 
is clearly talent. Um, but man, some of the records you played on, I still tell stories that, that you would share with some of the artists that you worked with, like Ronnie Millsap and uh, playing with Elvis and, and so forth. But brother, how have you been? It's been a while. And uh, I wanted this to be a kind of a real time conversation in catching up and also hearing, you know, what you've been up to and, and what you've accomplished and what you've learned along the way. Well, I moved back here in 04 from New York. Um, started working and doing sessions again, doing the same thing that I had been. Uh, almost got married to the wrong person. Just, I met, just recently got married to the right person. Oh, congratulations. September 26th is our, our anniversary. Um, Nashville um, has changed in such great, um, great ways. Um, and the music industry here um, is so totally different than it was when I was here in the 70s and 80s and 90s working exclusively. Because I, I lived between New York, as you know, between New York and Nashville for 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the architecture of the, of the city has changed. It, it's all, it's, it's beautiful, but it's very strange. Um, so what I've been up to basically is pursuing writing um, that I never got a chance to do before, but I've taken the time to do that, and uh, the opportunities are great, and uh, it's it's a wonderful outlet, you know, to be able to write and and, and perform something, um, or have the ability to record it if that's what you want to do. Um, but I focused basically on uh, keeping a studio going or something that I could work and do my own stuff in. Um, and uh, up until the flood, like I said, it was it was fine with the flood. Thank you, Lord, didn't wipe anything, didn't damage too much at all. Um, but I had to tear everything down. Ooh. Imagine, um, well, you remember the room in Cove City? Yep. Uh, imagine a subsize that. I've got um, most of the modules, but all the wiring and stuff had to be, we had to pull everything. Whoa. And now we're still stuffing it this week. Oh, my goodness. Um, so my, my work is backed up. <laughs> yeah. Like, plus the COVID thing is uh, so, uh, so strange. Um, but isn't it cool how it's kind of opened up uh, Zoom and stuff like that, you know, and we're doing things because we have to do them and uh, we're finding new ways to do them. You know, technology is, is letting us do that. Um, well, uh, <laughs> well, so let's really go, go down and like the sort of the timeline, um, because you like you mentioned technology, you were an early adopter. Um, yeah, I kind of had to be. Well, right. And the one of the things I, I believe, if I recall correctly, the reason why you had the studio was not only you know, obviously your talents, but uh, you had a, a piece of gear that uh, was so large, it needed a studio to, because back in those days, like a computer or anything digital uh, took up way more space than today. Yeah. Um, so how did you get into the new technology? Because you started out, you know, tickling the ivories and playing with some of the greats, and we'll get into that as well. But you were given an opportunity to transform the way music was made before it really took off in a digital sense. Yeah, I was, I was very blessed because uh, I bought a Minimoog in 1971. 
I think, or the end of 70. And the Mini Milk had just come out. Uh, as a matter of fact, my, uh, my serial number is 007. You still um, have it? A Model D, yeah. And now I just donated it to the Musicians Hall of Fame. Oh, wow, cool. Um, they're going to put it on display. But um, anyhow, um, t totally analog synthesis, obviously. Um, I, and I became um, very interested in electronic music when I was at uh, North Texas State. I was there very briefly. Um, and uh, I, I, got, I got to understand what a synthesizer was, but up until the mini mode came out, the only synthesizers were the ones like the switchboards, you know, right. huge ones, even bigger than the ones you and I are talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, when the mini mode came out, it was a portable, small, it was three and a half octave, I think, uh, uh, analog synth, uh, um, very stable. It just had to warm up, and once it warmed up, it was stable. Um, <laughs> and I used that, gosh, I used that and made my living on that basically in Nashville when I moved here in 72. Um, there were two guys in town that played synthesizer, and they were both engineers, and they weren't players. They were great engineers, but they weren't players. Um, so here I show up with this mini Moog, and I start doing. I, wor I worked a lot immediately, um, but I didn't. I didn't touch a piano in the studio for almost two years. Wow! I played mini Moog on uh, on everything I could. Um, one day I was doing a, a, a part on a, on a track, I, I can't remember who, who it was for, um, but there was a piano intro. It was a nice intro, but there was a slight mistake at the end of it. It was a slur that just, you know, you could, couldn't really, just, it was a little awkward, right? And the producer was freaking out because he said, oh, I didn't hear that before. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to mix this tomorrow. And, da, da, da. and I said, well, did you record it here? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, if you use that piano, you still got the mics, I can fix that. He said, you play piano? I said, yeah. <laughs> so I played on, I, I fixed the intro. And I, the record was, you know, I can't remember if it was a big hit or not, but it was a pretty, pretty popular thing. Uh, and I got a reputation immediately as a piano player. Well, then I kind of inverted and played piano almost exclusively until um, uh, Fairlight and Sinclair both came out about the same time. Uh, with their consumer versions in 78, I think, or 79, uh, way before MIDI. Uh, I got very interested in both of them, uh, and I bought a Fairlight 2X instead of a Synclavier in 70, when did I buy that? 79, I think, because the Fairlight was polyphonic. It could play eight voices. Synclavier was monophonic. Uh, but the Synclavier booted up at 50K, 16-bit word, Fairlight was a 32K 8-bit word, so it was like, you know, really cool right. sound, but not definitely not as fidelity speaking, you know, not, not what the Synclavier was. Um, so, and I started collecting uh, and buying synthesizers. Um, gosh, I think at one point I had over 20. Um, and I would, uh, I would show up for a session uh, with, I don't know if you can see that mixer back there. Yeah. Um, I'd have like, uh, I don't know if you know what ultimate support stands were, but they were yep. like an inverted V, right? uh -huh. keyboards on them, right? I'd show up to a session with two of those with three cents on each one and four on one, sometimes on another, and that rack full of gear and modules, and um, either the Synclavier or the Fairlight for a master keyboard, later a KX88. Um, I just had this wall and, 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 um, of stuff. 
as a result, I had to keep up with technology. I kind of go back to the original question. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I got so crazy reading manuals um, that that was hard to keep up with because there was no one to teach me except there was no YouTube, of course. I had to re read a manual and figure it out. And watching you work with the Sinclavier back then yeah. was crazy because cutting and pasting and the visual stuff didn't exist. No. So you'd be, I'd watch you ticking away on, and like just a couple of buttons and it was like Star Trek, like, <laughs> yeah. like little red buttons and, and you yeah. would just, you know, moving around. I'm like, I, like you figured that out by reading a manual? Like, I, <laughs> no, 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 the sync love here, no. I okay. had to have, in fact, when I bought, when I bought the Fairlight, I flew to New York. I lived in Nashville at the time. I flew to New York for, I think, three or four days to study with the Fairlight people. That's where, uh, where the school was. Mm -hmm. And I did a kind of a crash course, I think for five days, four or five days in New York to learn to use the Fairlight. Synclavier is similar, but uh, I, when I, I bought it, I, well, I already knew what digital synthesis was from using the Fairlight and FM synthesis. So I, I kind of had a view into that. Uh, Synclavier was just a kind of a different, um, different language, of course, but uh, different, same approach, but different, I guess you could say. But Synclavier's fidelity, you know, 50K and 16-bit word. Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, the tape machines, as you know, the digital tape machines, would only, when they, don't, they, they, didn't, they did not do upper octaves, as I remember, they, they were 48K mm -hmm. and 44.1. Um, and Club Year booted at 50 and would go to 100. Great do you still have that? Do you still play with it? I, I just sold my Club Year not too long ago, but I still have the D2D in my garage. It's for sale. <laughs> it's for sale. Cheap. <laughs> well, is, is there a market for Sinclair? Like, yeah, there's a lot of them around. Wow. Uh huh. Amazing. So yeah, amazing technology. We're going to jump around the timelines a bit because um, I, I want to get some of your you know, super entertaining stories about some of the records you you worked on and and those things. Uh, but one of the things that I think are instructive is you and I were both in the music industry and the peak of my career was when Napster came out. Yeah. And I remember we were there, you know, we were working together and, and I think, I think actually we, we don't remember specifically what, so, you know, when some of those epiphanies came, but you know, as far as like repositioning myself, but how did you adjust when you saw the writing on the wall, when, you know, obviously studios were closing, record companies were closing down, what were you thinking at that time? Did you ever think like, oh, maybe I should find another line of work or find another <laughs> way to pivot? Um, because you consistently play. I mean, obviously, when you're playing at your level and you're, you know, the, the talent that you have, the connections that you have, the records that you've played on, you probably didn't have the same concerns to, or the same degree as some others did. Um, but yeah. at the same time, you were, you know, the reality was that the industry was radically transforming. How were you feeling at that time? And what did you do in response to it? Um, I have a, a very dear friend, a brilliant um, person named Tony Gottlieb in my life. Um, and Tony made me aware of what the digital realm of music was going to be as far as uh, income. And um, I didn't really worry about it too much um, because I thought always as a player, I can um, keep, keep or making my living in as a player. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that um, 
the thing that kind of scared me all about all that um, in the 90s, uh, because of working with the Sinclair and other technology, all of us knew that it was simply a matter of um, speed and storage. Mm -hmm. You know, and once we had that, we could do downloads and you know and online stuff. So it wasn't a, a tremendous great surprise. Um, but uh, the way the industry took it on the chin, uh, or, or really <laughs> um, kicked in the knees, um, nobody was ready. Everybody had been hearing about it because we'd been talking about it for five years, you know, six years. Um, so they kind of hit their heads in the sand like ostriches, I guess, and just hoped it would go away, which it didn't. Yeah, Napster, when I remember when Napster came out, oh, gosh, record companies were just, uh, oh, sorry. Um, um, record companies were just freaking. Um, but I, I wasn't, uh, like I said, too concerned because as a player, uh, I can still make my own music, you know? Right. Um, well, and oh, one of the things that I noticed, and, you know, obviously uh, we, we did some work in Nashville together, um, Nashville in and of itself, the ecosystem wasn't as impacted because they yeah. seem to still believe in supporting other artists. They yeah. hi you hired each other. You would, you know, like it didn't have the same feeling of like desperation the way it felt yeah. in New York and LA and, and all of that. Like it just seemed like people were like, okay, we're in this together. I'm still going to hire you. We're still going to keep the flow going. We may be uh -huh. paid less. Maybe we're not doing double or triple scale for some records, but you know, we'll, we'll do what we can. Um, yeah. Did, yeah. it, did it stay like that? That's a good summation. Um, yeah, at, at one point, it got a little top, it got a little top heavy, I guess is the best term, um, but it never collapsed. Um, it kept going. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was not as great a concern uh, uh, as there was maybe in different music capitals of the world. Um, right. Because, uh, like you said, Nashville's so self-contained yeah um uh it, it kind of the engine just keeps on rolling uh takes a lot to slow it down um but uh the thing that that i was concerned about when the digital thing um started happening uh i've been uh, made aware of um what uh what was going to happen uh with licensing mm -hmm. and the fact that so many unlicensed things were happening being sold you know and played yeah. and used, you know, without any um, income to the uh, artist or the producer or the record company or whoever, you know, publisher. Yeah. You know, that, that greatly concerned me and still does. It's still a viable. Um, well, you yeah, actually concern. had uh, Bill Porcelli on, uh, on the show and, and he sends his love and, and oh, yeah. Tell him uh, how, yeah. speaks great. tremendously of you. Um, and he, he shared similar concerns and and sort of no one's a hundred percent sure where it's all going uh because it's it's interesting it's almost harder and easier to track and monetize in you know it kind of it's the the more extreme the technology becomes the more extreme people are using it to either <laughs> you know share it for nothing or or find ways yeah. to you know and same thing like with spotify and the streaming services unfortunately yeah. the artists are getting hammered for that yeah Worse than, than MP3s, because yeah. at first, my experience with it, and correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't bring this up with Bill, is, you know, the iPods became vehicles for the fuel of MP3s. So instead of uh -huh. buying 
a like buying a whole record, they could buy singles. Now they were doing singles anyway. There was a big yeah. single thing, but when you bought a single, it always had multiple versions. So like other people were contributing and, and you could justify like $7 for a, a single because it had like right. five or six cuts on it. Right? Remember, but then, remember all those versions we'd make when you we, we, right, yeah, that's how we, yeah, so we were doing. Yeah. But then the, when the MP3s became so uh, normalized, they would just release a song without all the mm -hmm. other bits because it, there was no reason to do all of that because it didn't move the product anymore. It actually yes. cost more to do that based on the return they were getting on the, the sale of a single. Um, and now streaming has even made it even worse oh. uh, for artists. How, what, what's the climate there? And have you heard with technology, anyone discussing or thinking about new ways to monetize or find ways to celebrate each other's music and be able to con continue to make a living? Or is it just that maybe that's just the new norm? I'm afraid it seems to be the new norm, but there is discussion going on. Um, the fraction, <coughs> excuse me, the fraction of percent that we get for digital downloads uh, is is ridiculous. Uh, stat rate, for that matter, uh, stat rate is what I think it's around nine and a half, or is it almost ten? It's something around that. Um, it should be around if it followed. Um, well, yeah, so for some of our uh, listeners and viewers, what, what is that rate? What that's is that? rate. Okay. Uh, is, um, is what is, it's, it's a fee for using a song. Okay, yep. Um, and um, if, if it followed uh, the economics of, of, um, of America, or for, for the world for that matter, it would be around 40-something cents. Right. But it's less than 10. Um, the, the, the fraction that we get from um, digital downloads, um, I'm talking players uh, um, and publishers, oh gosh, it's, it's, it's fractional. It's yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, and the thing that still bewilders me is why people think that uh, it should be free. I don't understand that. If, uh, if you go to the Guggenheim uh, and you walk out with a picture, uh, you can't eat it for free. They you know? think they're taking, but taking a picture of it, you're allowed to. Yeah. That's, and that's, and that's uh, so I think that's, that's where the mindset is, is that, exactly. oh, this isn't the actual thing. It's a, it's a copy of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's so, and it's so crazy. Like, all right. So as an example, it's somewhat different, but interesting and how things are being utilized. And it's, it's unfortunate because of the, the modality of um, distribution. Uh, it used to be when I was on the road with Tony Robbins um, at all of our events, you were not, they would be people like if, you, if they saw someone videoing the, the, you know, the experience, they'd be like, Hey, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. Can't do that. Right. It's bootlegging. Now they don't care because they know that they're going to put it on in these short clips into social media and it's actually going to be free marketing. Hmm. Okay. But today, if you were to do that and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, here we go, Shane, you're going to perform. I'm going to record it. 
that doesn't necessarily mean someone's going to go, oh, I'm going to go see Shane perform, you know, or, you know, see his band or whatever, or buy that record because I just got a, a copy of it. Yeah. Because of the way the, the work is done, the, the, the size of the projects, all that, you know, if you're recording, you know, 10 minutes of a 50 hour experience or you do all three minutes of a three minute song is a very different, you know, conversation. Um, yeah. But it, it's just, you know, it, it does boggle my mind as well as to the, dare I say, the entitlement mentality of yeah. when things are accessible on, you know, like, oh, I can just download it. So therefore I should be able to. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how that's impacted people because I'm sure, so like kind of tangent off of that, how many people besides me, do you know that uh, left the industry um, in the last, you know, two decades because of some of these challenges? Like, did it thin the herd in your experience? Oh, you're asking me how many? Yeah. Well, not, you know, a oh, percentage. No, you know, not, you know. No, the, no. Um, at least a dozen people I can think of immediately. More, more probably more like 20 if I, if I started thinking. And these are players, uh, producers, engineers, like all walks of, of uh -huh. life in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of writers have uh, not, just because of the digital realm, have stopped writing. Interesting. Um, yeah. It's a shame, too. Yeah. Well, but, but, but now, so using technology you shared earlier about, uh, are you writing remotely now? Yeah. So um, how has that worked out technically? technologically speaking, to find ways to have that same synergy to play along with and be able to really hear each other? I mean, are you setting up, is there another software that you do that with? Is there a, a way that you can hear each other? Uh, there is, and I don't know what it is. Okay. I haven't used it yet, honestly. Okay. I, I'm, I feel like I live in a cave sometimes because I'm, I'm so comfortable doing what I'm doing. So, so right now people are what, sending you some tracks and saying, yeah. Hey, can you, you know, throw your magic on there or, you know, yeah. okay. Um, well, and that we were doing back, back then, and that was starting to happen, you know, as things started to decline, like we would go into, I don't know how many times we would go into a big studio, go to Pi or Cove or some other studio and say, okay, we're going to cut the, the, the basics, right? And, and we got the piano and got all that. So cool. And then we do that in a couple of days and then do all the overdubs, mix everything outside of the big studio. Yeah. Um, I assume that's still happening there. Are any of the big yeah. studios still open that you could go in? Oh, yeah. And, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, two, three, four, five. I can think of five or six right now that are um, maybe not five days a week, but at least two or three days a week. Um, yeah, things are churning here again. Great. Uh, nobody's using social distancing, though. That's a little scary for me. I've been wearing a mask just, you know, for both my protection and everybody else. You know, anybody else's feelings about it. Um, yeah, um, that that was the wherewithal, and, and, and the same, the strange thing, um, I've I've been so blessed to be the part, born when I was born and, and start doing what I was doing in, in uh, recording music, because I've watched it go from everybody in the room at the same time, no punch ins, no overdubs, right. uh, reading music sometimes, or you know, usually actually, uh, uh, to uh, making things, uh, making great records one instrument at a time. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, and it's certainly, it's interesting how our ears are tuned because of it. 
Um, yeah. Because we listen to some old records and, and we hear the mistakes. We hear that, you know, like even some of the rides with different, you know, when I say rides, for those of you who are not musically inclined, like when they were mixing stuff, they would ride the vocals, raise them up, lower them, get solos, whatever. And you could hear stuff like, whoa, you know, what are you thinking? Whereas even in, when I was working, we, you know, the SSL or the Neve that we, you know, our two axes, you could program those rides and that was part of the mix and and all yeah. that so it, it got better and better and better and then the advent of tuning came in uh, and Lord. now all of a sudden the the vocals we're we're actually conditioned and it's used as a device now not even as just like oh let's ears, do a little tweaking it's a device all right our ears have been tuned because by the music of the last 10 years i want to say absolutely uh, uh, and yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily I'm not going to go into for good or for bad because we have our references. So there's no exactly. like whatever we were influenced, listen to at first, that's always going to be the best because that's yeah. what impacted yeah. us. Um, so without judgment, but it is an observation. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were talking about, um, you know, the automated mixing and two consoles and stuff like that. And I, I remember I'll have to explain this, what a comp box is. Because oh, yes. even in our analog days, we were all thinking, you know, ways of uh, of doing things, you know, now exist with computers, but they didn't exist then. So, the yeah, so like, to geek, geek out a little bit, uh, when we would, it would be a composite box. So what would happen is, is that usually it was done with vocals, but sometimes with solos and that kind of thing. Someone would do multiple takes. And then we would take the sliders or buttons and switch takes. We'll take one, take two, take three, and we would listen to it and write down, okay, take word from track one, <laughs> take, you know, this phrase from track two. And then we'd be sliding the, full, the back and forth, hit the button, slide, hit the button, slide it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and now with Pro Tools, it, it, we're just, well, you know, it was a little late. Let's just move it back a little <laughs> bit. Let's just like yeah. – and the expectation of, and you know, like to get into the psychology of this, um, dare I say, <laughs> and we'll always do this. I think that is another microcosm of how a level of perfection is expected of people uh -huh. when it's not possible. Uh -huh. um, uh, you know, you can go back and listen to your playing when you were younger, you're playing and still, but like your records that were done where it wasn't countering that are incredible. And, duplicatable because if you if you could do it someone could ultimately learn how to do it sure but now but there was always some mistakes there was some but that was kind of what gave it that you know, humanity. mistakes but the yeah the the little push and pull stuff that gave uh -huh. it that feeling yeah the humanity now when everything is so perfect there's almost like oh i should be able to sing that way i should be able to play that way i should be able to and then they may get discouraged because they go and try and copy it and it's like i i can't do that it's, it's not even like not even doable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wonder how that impacts new artists where they start playing. And, and I wonder if it at first created more talented people because they were more diligent in practicing. Could be. I don't know. Could you be. know, it's interesting. I am. Um, I had the pleasure of working with an artist um, uh, about two months ago who read music and was a great still exist. <laughs> um, um, a lot of people don't that, that are great, you know, wonderfully talented people, but the ability to read music uh, and communicate uh, with, with things in writing. Uh, oh gosh, there's nothing like, nothing, nothing like that. Um, but you were talking about um, 
the digital realm making things enable enabling us to do things that aren't aren't humanly possible. Yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's wonderful that we have that ability, that we can that we can make records that that sound like that. But uh, it's it's kind of. Um, our, uh, I don't know. Un, um, unsatisfactory. I don't know what the term would be. Uh, that we can't do that. You know, we can make we can make something that's so, uh, you know, no, no blemishes, no wrinkles, absolutely perfect. But yeah, and and I guess there's I guess there's two ways to look at it as well. So as as a creator, to be able to do things that are not humanly possible by yourself that's kind of cool because you go, wow, yeah. I could have never done that. So you go, wow, that creates something very, a, a new dynamic. Yeah. If it's raising a standard though of possibility and a level of expectation, that I think is where I think education needs to come in where you go, oh, okay, I see what's going on. Yeah, that, that, that I guess. All right, so as an example, multi-tracking, when multi-tracking first started, I know that I'm sure that opened up a whole bunch of ideas, right? And we could say, hey, you can't do that live because, you know, you have all those extra guitars and parts and, and harmonies and all that. Because my first introduction to that possibility out of ignorance was when um, Rolling Stone's uh, Emotional Rescue. Hmm. So you remember where uh, Mick Jagger does the octave? Yeah. himself he so he sings the high octave yeah. and all of that so my friend who like i first time i heard the song and he's playing it, he's like ah, yeah mick jagger did that like <laughs> he could sing two you know two voices at once i'm like yeah, all right hold on like at first i was like eight or whatever it was like wow right? and then as we got older we understand how it gets done so it did create artistry technology created the possibility yeah. of artistry that didn't prior exist yes that is true. So it, that's the balance that we all have is how do we, and I, and I look at everything in life right now because technology is moving so fast is the, the looking at the, the collateral impact mm-hmm. from all of that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, no one knew we couldn't like I use the music industry is as one of the, the great disruptors, what technology disrupted the music industry. And we weren't using that term all the time. You know, because now it's like, ooh, industry yeah. disruptors, Uber and Airbnb, and everyone loves throwing that around. But back then, we were just like, what the F? Yeah, what happened? Yeah, which is, what do you mean <laughs> we, the studio's closing? Well, you know, people are making records at home. They don't need us anymore. I'm like, what? <laughs> so uh. It's interesting how, uh, how this all impacts how we show up. Yeah. Um, so let's have some fun and talk about some uh, some old stories uh, of the uh, y- your experience. Maybe some some hidden gem that you know someone would be able to relate to because they uh, they they know the song, know the artist, know the time frame, and could appreciate the uh, the fun of it. Gosh, let me think. I can't really name names. I know that, but I can. Oh, well, some you can. Yeah, so, yeah. Depends on the story. Right. That's it. <laughs> Um, well, I'll tell you a funny story. It wasn't, I don't remember the artist. Um, uh, but uh, the story is there was a, uh, I was working uh, a lot between New York and Nashville in the 70s and 80s. I had clients in both cities. And um, 
I guess it was, this would have been circa 70s, I guess, uh, a New York client called me and said, Shane, I've got a country artist that I want to cut. He said, obviously, I can't cut her in New York. Put me a country rhythm section together and we'll be down in two months. To, da, da, da. So I booked a country, uh, a country rhythm section and uh, we did the album. Um, Nashville used to operate and still does basically at 10, 2, 6 and 10 are the three hour session dates. And if you're going to do an album, a 10 and a 2 is a session for three hours at 10, a break for an hour and a session at 2 for three hours. So a 10 and a 2, you could cut at least two or three songs every day like that. And you could cut an album in a week. Yeah. Which we, we booked the band for a week, got to the end of the record. And um, uh, the, arrange, uh, the arranger, he was also the producer, uh, went, went over to the union to pay the, uh, the session costs, musician costs on Monday morning, the following Monday. And uh, at, the, at the union was Jimmy Capps, who just passed away, Lord. Oh, gosh, I miss him. Um, Jimmy was uh, playing guitar on the sessions all week, and he saw the arranger, and he would say, hey, how you doing, Jimmy? Great. He said, um, session, session stuff, stuff turned out great. The artist loves the record. You know, we're going to take it back to New York and mix it. Um, and that bass player was just amazing. He was, he, he's, he's amazing. What's his name? Jimmy said, oh, that was Joe Allen. Oh, he's, oh, do you know that he won a bass tournament? And Jimmy said, what? He said he had a jacket on that said all pro bass tournament. Bass. And he, Joe Allen was a bass fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> so ever since Jimmy told me that, he and I have talked about it. We talked about it. What would a bass tournament be? A bunch of guys in a room. Right. <laughs> yeah. <I'm sure. laughs> Don't turn your music over yet. You've got 15 seconds to the first guy to Dakota without a mistake. Uh, uh, yeah, I think. I, wasn't there a similar thing with um, Larry King and he introduced uh, Kiss on the show and he says, and here's Gene Simmons who plays the bass guitar. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Oh, um, that's great. I, I don't know. So I, th there's one story that I share and I use it even in personal development to uh, talk about how sort of you never know. Um, and not to judge things too, uh, too powerfully and to, to really let things sit a little bit. And it was a story, and maybe I shouldn't be sharing it, but it was, uh, it was a Kenny Rogers story you shared with me uh, about Lucille. Huh. Yeah, I think I know the story. Go ahead. Okay, so, all right, so I can tell it. I'll, I'll tell no, it. Yeah, uh, so I guess you and Paul, right? Paul Lyme uh, was the drummer. Was no, Paul? Uh, no, it wasn't Paul. That would have been uh, either Jerry Kerrigan or Kenny Buttry. Uh, okay, I think, it was, I think it was Jerry Kerrigan. So I thought it was a drummer that you were saying there, and you came in, and, and it was after, you know, you came in, you guys were listening back to the Oh, uh, that song. was a bass player. It was, it was uh, we were talking, uh, oh, Joe Osmond. Okay. Joe Osmond. So you're sitting there, and, and you're, you're going, man, I, I don't get it. Like, I, I don't know about this song. I just, this yeah. is, what the heck? And he's like, <laughs> no, man, this is a hit. This is going to be huge. Yeah. And then you shared that it turned out to be Lucille. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have been much more wrong. <laughs> right, right? And it, it's just so funny because 
in life, sometimes we think things are, there's some things that we think are going to be amazing, whether it be starting a business, whether it be a relationship, whether it be, you know, what have you. And you may have other people on the outside going, I don't know. And, and you're like, no, 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 trust me. But conversely, yeah. the same thing where, you know, other people are going, you guys are perfect for each other. This should be great. And, <laughs> or this business is going to be awesome. And then you're kind of like in your gut kind of going, I don't know. Uh -huh. And, and, the point is we never know on either yeah. side and it's about being open and trusting, yeah. like allowing things to unfold a little bit more. Yeah. Right. Well, for me, it's willing to be wrong, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, yes, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. That was a good one. Cause I mean, there's so many stories like that where, you know, I think Russ, uh, well, I'm going to have Russ on. He shared, uh, he was oh, brought in right. this artist. Tell him hi for me. Of course. Uh, I brought in this artist and he was like, oh man, this, this girl stinks. Like her voice is horrible. And oh man, I just, I don't care what she's got going on. It, musically, this ain't going to work. And it was Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all, we all can miss him. Yeah. It, it's so crazy. Uh, so I'll, tell you, funny, I'll tell you a funny story about you reminded me when you said Lucille, I remembered a funny story. About myself, I can tell you. It's not, um, at the end of that, we did that album, I think in at least a week we were in the studio. And right after that, maybe two, three weeks after that, I was in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, where my family is from, where I was born, uh, visiting my mother. And as I drove by the, uh, the, uh, the only venue in town, uh, it said Kenny Rogers here, you know, Friday night or Saturday night was an author. And I had just worked with him. You know, just, we just done that record. I thought I, I, I ought to call him, you know, say hi. Well, I got to my mom's house and the only place that anybody would stay that was decent back then was the Holiday Inn. I figured he would be there. Um, so I called and of course they wouldn't tell me that he was there or not. And I just said, look, my name's Shane Keister. I just worked with him. Just put, please tell him Shane Keister called and is in town, lives in town, with, or is in town where his mother lives. Gave him the phone number and she said, okay, I'm not gonna say I'm gonna pass it on. So I never thought about it again. Um, it was, I think it was a Saturday, I guess, and uh, I, ate, I ate lunch or something, and I got tired and took a nap about 5 o'clock, maybe 6 o'clock. I napped for like two or three hours, you know. When I woke up, my mom said, Shane, I'm glad you're awake now. How are you feeling? I'm, I'm, you're tired from driving? I said, oh, I'm fine. She said, well, she said, the nicest young man called, Kenny Rutgers, Kenny will and ask to speak to you, but she said, I told him you were asleep and he'd call him later. <laughs> of course, by now it's like nine thirty or 10 o'clock and I'm over, call. right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I just, and that's so cool to just to hear the humanity of the whole thing too, because I, I always like to point out sometimes of those memes of like, you know, what, you know, what the you know what my friends think i do what my parents think i do yeah what the you know the social media think i do and then what you know what i really no, do. really do <laughs> and so much of what we did was basically no sun sitting in a room with like you know no windows hours and hours and hours just sitting on our asses you know playing <laughs> recording you know figuring out parts punching in fixing stuff all of that so that one day we could go out and play a two-hour show and people go oh okay yeah your life's easy like okay well, let me back you up on that one those two hours 
you didn't see the 22 where we were sitting in a bus, sitting in a hotel, sitting on a plane, sitting on yeah. like, like, it's not glamorous. Yeah. It's no, not at all. Glamorous. It's not the glamorous life people believe. But yeah, I, but I then remember you have those moments. Go ahead. Well, yeah, you have those moments and where, you know, the humanity comes out and, and it's like, oh, yes, you know, a friend of mine called and mom didn't realize it was, you know, Kenny Rogers. Like, <laughs> she, I mean, she, she didn't listen to music. She had no idea who Kenny was, you know. That's funny. <laughs> so how, how have you then, you know, looking at now the next disruptor that we experienced was, was COVID, um, and then you got the one-two punch. You got the COVID and the tornado. Um, yeah. What what do you see? Because I just I was on uh, Ray Amico the other day, and he we were oh, talking yeah. about the the future of touring and and live events. Um, he said that uh, was it Keith Urban or um, oh who was it? They did like a drive-through show or something like that. They're taking a drive-in oh, theater. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember who. Yeah, I remember that though. Yeah. So like, wh- what is, what has been the vibe been in, in your circle and, and your, your pals that are, you know, like used to performing in front of humans, <laughs> how are you guys handling all that? What's, well, what's we're still looking at, we're still looking ahead. Um, uh, we know we can't really capture what we've lost as far as income. Um, but it seems like everybody, um, Everybody is willing to understand it's been an unavoidable pro- uh, problem. And uh, just saying, uh, no, we can't ever play this venue again, or we can't ever uh, do this circuit again, uh, is not, it's, not, it's not on the table. We're all trying to figure out ways to, to make it work. Um, there hasn't been a lot of panic that I can tell. Um, we've all... Uh, well, I think there were one, two, three, four, five or six weeks went by that I didn't go in the studio. Mm. Um, maybe maybe six or seven weeks. Uh, but things are things are um, loosening up now. Like I said, I just I'm a little uncomfortable when people aren't wearing masks and following social distancing because we're all in the control and we're not touching. But it's not comfortable. <laughs> right. Um, um, as far as uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, live. Uh, as far as any live stuff, I'm not doing much live stuff at all anymore. Uh, almost all my, uh, all my stuff is in the studio, people mailing me stuff. Right. And how much live were you doing prior or had you shifted into doing more studio anyway? Well, I, I worked with Linda Carter for a while. Right. Um, and did, um, did that for, I don't know, gosh, eight or nine years. Um, Oh, did that, you, was that, that tour canceled? Did you have shows scheduled oh, for yeah. this year? Yeah, well, uh, uh, I haven't been with her for almost a year, but yeah, okay. they, they canceled. So, the, was that two years ago we, we came and saw you? Heidi well, and I, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, time flies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they canceled that, uh, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know what, uh, what her, uh, what her um, schedule is going to be for the next year or whatever. Uh, but like I said, I don't I don't do too much live stuff other than just wanting to play, you know, sit in or something. I don't I don't play out. Okay. Um, do you so 
when you do do that or when you had done that, I know like when I hang out with like Joe Franco and stuff like that, like oh, just Joey. Be hanging and then so yeah. like, Hey, he's Joey, come on up. And he, I, he just obviously loves to play and, and, yeah. and, and does that. Uh, do you find yourself or found yourself up until recently, like out and about, like, and it was like, Hey, Shane's here, come on up. And, <laughs> and was, was there a, a lot of that? Not, not much, a little. Um, Cause I, uh, I don't live in a cave. I'm not going to say that, but I, I don't frequent um, too much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun when that happens. Yeah. So w- one of the stories, I don't know if you can tell, um, just because I, I love hearing you're, you're such a fun storyteller anyway, is uh, the Ronnie Millsap, uh, <laughs> <laughs> your, your indoctrination to the band. <laughs> Let me think, which story would that be? There's so many Millsap stories. Uh, driving the bus. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wasn't part of the band, but that's what they told me. Uh, the new guy was. Okay. Um, they were on an army base. I think the base north of Memphis. Yeah. Whatever that base is. Um, and an army base is big, you know, 20, 30 square miles. Yeah. Uh, well, they lived, uh, they were staying there. I think they were doing it two, or they might have been doing it for, for a month. I think they were doing a month up there, uh, five nights a week. And they were staying on a part of the base that was maybe two miles by road um, back uh, from the club where they were playing. And Ronnie memorized the route of the bus, you know, uh, where you'd stop. And you turn left, you go for so many seconds, you stop, turn right, go for so many seconds, turn right, you know, whatever. And uh, I, I, I think it was a guitar player that was new in the band. Um, and uh, he got on the bus one night when they were leaving the club or maybe going to the club or whatever, and Millsap was behind the wheel. And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. And he went back and took his seat and Ronnie drove to the club and just freaked him out. Lost <laughs> him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have so many stories of, of back in the the day when things were um, more permissible. Uh, it seems oh, like people got away with a, a lot more. Um, share how you, uh, and I don't remember the, the whole thing when you shared back, you know, when we were able to talk more often, how you got uh, your opportunity with Elvis, how that started, because that must have been amazing. Like, Yeah, that was that was wonderful. Um, I had worked on his record with Chip Young and Felton. Uh, I can't remember which record it was. It was the last. Uh, it was the last record he had. Whatever, whatever that one was. Um, and uh, Glenn D. and Ronnie Tut. I think were Ronnie. Was it Glenn D. and Ronnie uh, gave Elvis notice that uh, they were going? I think they were going to go out with Emmylou Harris. Um, and it was, I don't know, 60 days from the beginning of the tour, maybe 30 days. It wasn't a lot of notice. Um, so I had just worked on the record, and uh, Felton um, called and, and said, um, Shane, you, you want to go out and do an Elvis tour? And I'm like, what? He told me you know, the, the pay and what the schedule was and everything, and I'm like, yeah, sure. And Larry London uh, and I went out together. Uh, that would have been, I think it was... It was 1976, and I think it was November of 76. Um, but we, uh, we drove to Memphis and went out uh, and rehearsed in the racquetball court for three days, actually two and a half days. Uh, and uh, 
his songs were, I mean, they were pretty easy. You're a player, you know, nothing compli complicated about his songs. It was just memorizing. <clears throat> and um, the emphasis was on always watch Elvis, you know. He, sometimes he'll stop songs in the middle of a song or change his mind and want to do something else. Just watch him, watch him, watch him. So, yeah, we worked for two, two and a half days rehearsing, and he came in uh, and um, was really nice. He was really nice to all of us. And said, okay, let's go. He called a song. We played it. Called another song, played. I think we played four or five songs. He was like, "That's it. You're ready." <laughs> we're like, "Dude, are you sure?" He's like, "Yeah, you guys got it covered." So we were like, "Oh, how cool!" You know. Um, but uh, that reminds me. I was just thinking of the most embarrassing moment in my life happened with Elvis <laughs> on that tour. Um, we were at Cincinnati Riverfront Stadium. Uh, I think it's a, it's a huge stadium. It's like 90,000 people or something. It's crazy big. Uh, anyhow, it was sold out. And uh, it, we had already done, gosh, five, maybe maybe even six or seven shows. By that, and I was already totally comfortable with the shows. Um, and uh, Elvis, uh, like I said, the emphasis was always watch Elvis. Well, with any performer when you're live, you always watch the performer. You know that. Um, so... El one of Elvis's routines was we'd play, uh, I think Heartbreak Hotel was the song. It was a medley. It was a three-song medley. Heartbreak Hotel, um, Teddy Bear, and whatever the third one was. And at the end of Heartbreak Hotel, he'd stop and do some karate moves, right? Flirt with the girls. Yeah. And when he'd throw his fist out like that, I had to play Teddy Bear. So like, -da 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 -da, right? Easy. Uh, as long as you could see him. Well, that night at Riverfront Stadium, Charlie Hodge, who was a great, big, huge guy, backed up against the piano. Now, I'm sitting down playing piano. And he moved back while Elvis was doing his, his karate. Oh, no. And that doesn't go long. You know, it's like 10 seconds, maybe five seconds sometimes, depending on what. I couldn't see Elvis. So finally, Charlie moved to the left, and Elvis was looking at me like, he gives <laughs> knives, you know. And I'm shrinking. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a deer in the oh, and, and how do you recover from that? Because do I play? Oh, do I not? Are you going to do another punch? Like, what's oh, oh he, he, he said, excuse us, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a new idiot playing piano. Can't seem to keep up with the show or something like that. I'm like, oh, 90,000 people laughing at me. And that, my friends, was the last show I played with Gene. <laughs> at the end of his tour. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. So what happened off stage? Was he like... Oh, well... Did he rip Actually, you a new one, or was he like, hey, dude, what happened? Well, he asked me after, after later what happened, and I told him, and he was like, I think he said something pretty severe to Charlie. I know I did at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but he, it got to be a kind of – actually, and I think it kind of got to be a game with him and I, because in the middle of doing nothing, he'd throw his hand out, and I'd go, da-da. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah, awesome. See, yeah, he was funny. Um, wow. I, yeah, that was I, the most embarrassing moment of my life. Cool. It's, it, it wasn't even my fault. <laughs> I mean, what a beautiful story. So question, have you written your book yet? No, I'm, I'm working on it though. I've got, how many chapters have I got done? 14, I think, or 15. Perfect. Because people need to hear it.
Um, I, I will, I, I mean, I just, dude, I miss you so much. The, the, the just the fun that we had making records and, yeah. and just hanging. I, I wish we got to play more together. Yeah, me um, too. Because, uh, man, you're, you're so talented. Uh, one of the stories that I do share, and I use this in, um, in uh, when I was working in treatment, was the story you shared about the pigs on your farm that you gave uh, fermented slop. Do you... <laughs> Yes, I. That, I mean, to me, that was such a, a perfect example of life, of just like a nice <laughs> microcosm of how people, you know, are unique yet the same in how <laughs> how we respond in in uh, situations. Um, you know, I just and for those of you, I don't know if you want to tell it or, or I can. The the it, it was great. They're your pigs. Please, please share. Gail us. <laughs> pigs are sacred. Um, <laughs> I had four pigs. They were all about 200 pounds, and I had been making plum wine. Um, uh, I had a plum tree, uh, and I had two, let's see, those crocs. I had two 15-gallon crocs that were both almost full of, of fermenting um, plums with uh, seeds and stems. Uh, uh, skins, I'm sorry. <laughs> skins and, and, and seeds. Because um, you just mash them up, uh, put a little sugar in it, put a little, Fill it up with water, cover it up, and let it ferment. And then you barrel it. That's basically how you make wine. So anyhow, I filtered it, and um, I had oh gosh, I guess five or six gallons of of uh, plum stuff left over. And pigs love sour stuff anyway. So I hauled it up to the pig pen, dumped it in the trough. Now, did you know what you were doing at the time? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. So this, yeah. this is your normal torture to your pigs or, or pleasure. Figured, depends on. <laughs> uh, well, hey, I figured they, they, you know, it's like, a, you know, they're going to go to the market pretty soon. They might as well have a good drunk, you know, <laughs> <laughs> at least have some kind of a party. But boy, they ate it up and um, two of them um, immediately passed out. Maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes later, they were two of them got in a fight, just like a bar. <laughs> And they fought, they fought back and forth for a while, and then they stopped. And the one that walked away walked not, not far, 20, 30 steps, and he just fell over on his side and slept for several hours. It was, it was wonderful. Oh, that is hilarious. I, man, I, that was one of the, the best things. I think if any of the, the glamour of uh, the experience that we had in, this, in, in the industry – uh, to me, things like hanging out and, and having those moments were the best. Um, yeah. To just be able to connect and share stories and, and just be human. We had a job to do and, and we always worked incredible hours. I don't think, you know, yeah. it, it was never a nine to five. It was more like uh -huh. 12 to two or three in the morning. Um, we're in break at 12 or in two or three in the morning and come back to work at four. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and that opportunity to really connect and, and just bond. I mean, it was a family. We, we, yeah. you know, we certainly um, went through quite a bit and, and yeah. the, the challenges that we faced in the industry. Um, I'm so blessed to have been where, you know, the part that I had uh, and I'm so proud that you're still doing it. Um, uh, I feel you know, very blessed. I, I am. Yeah. Thank you. It was, and speaking of family, I ran into our friend Rick. Oh, no way. Where? Uh, the uh, was James Burton and Friends show here in November. It was a great show at the Skirmerhorn. A bunch of great players, a bunch of great artists came in. Um, 
Rick had an artist on there. Who was her name? Carolyn Jones. Good uh-huh. artist. And um, I was the MD for the thing. Uh, and I saw him over, uh, talking to managers and stuff and doing his Rick thing. So I waited until he was facing me, but looking at his phone, right? And I just walked up and pushed his phone right into him. He was like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was funny. I'm sure he wanted to tell you hi. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, I reached out to him a couple of times. I, I will again. I believe he's down here, actually, in Florida. Oh, um, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I know he has a house here. but Yeah. Uh, so have you – there's still some people who are over there now. Maria Christensen is over by you. Have you guys connected? No, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. So I'll connect you guys. And then Tony Harnell. Remember Tony from TNT? No, I don't think so. Okay, rock. It was a rock rock group, uh, like you know, kind of a glam thing uh, okay. in the eighties. His name is for me, but I just don't yeah, remember. He's a really talented guy. He's there. Um, I think uh, Russ said Arnie Roman moved from there. Or is he still there? I think he moved back to New York. Okay, he, he and uh, Tanya moved back to the last time. Unless they moved back here, they had they had a place back here they were renting. Yeah, that they. I mean, they, they owned that they rented out. So maybe they came back. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I'll follow up on on them, but it's just man, we had such it was such a period of our lives. I mean, that was, yeah. you know, working on, well, you know, Celine Dion and, and yeah. J-Lo and Mariah Carey and all those, the Chicago what soundtrack, making some great records. and, and amazing. good records we made. Yeah. And, and then tomorrow, uh, D. Snyder is uh, going to be on. Oh, wow. Tell so, D. Hi. Yeah. How cool. So, you know, it's great that we're, we're still doing our things and, and how so many of us have reinvented in our own ways. Yeah. Um, you know, AD from Fat, Adrian is a big DJ in Vegas now, in San Diego. Garrett oh, is the music director of uh, the Blue Man Group in Orlando. Oh, uh, cool. Mike Boyko, and here I'm just talking about that right now. Mike Boyko is uh, still drumming, but is, uh, has his business called Tempo in Motion, um, mm. which is a golf uh, thing using rhythm, you know, music for golf you, you, on your swing. Cool. Uh, Dibs is up in New York doing uh, video production and so forth, but he was working for iHeartRadio for many years. Oh, wow. Um, Rich Tancredi's still playing. Uh, oh, gosh. He's in New York. It's like all these great people are, are still out there kind of just doing their thing and finding ways to, to make it, but we still all stay in relative touch. And um, yeah. it's, it, it's been, it, it was a real blessing. Um, yeah, it truly was. It's great truly. that we're all still figuring it out. Yeah, I know I am. (laughs) Amen. Um, So your book is going to be coming out. I want to support you on that. Um, I'll send you a copy. I think I've got 14 or 15 chapters. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it'll be done when it's done. And is it a chronicling of uh, your adventures in the industry? Is it? It's that, and it's a a view of of life from a young musician, to an older musician uh, and all the crazy parts of my life that it happened. Um, it, it probably will be viewed as fiction, but it's real. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and also before we go, I just want to also acknowledge and recognize something that I, I whether I was um, overt in my appreciation or uh, honor and respect is, is your spiritual center. Um, and, and your faith that I know you, um, you wear proudly and it always felt, um, 
you know, like genuine and honest and, and welcoming and, and truly, you know, like a, a part of your genuine character. Um, and that's something that I, I've always appreciated, honored and respected. And, uh, you know, I know for a while you're also playing in a, in a church um, as, as I know, I mean, I, I don't know if they know the gift they had of you sharing your God given talents in the church. Um, but, oh my gosh, I would love to have been, you know, part of a service that you were the, uh, the MD on for that. Cause I'm sure the, the spirit that comes through in there is tremendous. It's a, I'm, I'm, I'm always more blessed than they are. I think it's a, it's a wonderful church. It's a little tiny church. I, we probably have 22, 23 regular members. Oh, wow. Um, and do they know what they have when you come and play? They probably do. They do. <laughs> sweet. I don't, I don't, uh, there's another guy, uh, Bruce Dees, uh, another brother, uh, and Bruce is a sweet spirit and he plays guitar and, uh, he and I worked, oh, hundreds of sessions together. He's a great player. You'd love him, but yeah, I'm still going. They're still playing. Oh, that's amazing. So, oh, so uh, did that get shut down at all during COVID? Well, we, we went to Facebook and, uh, uh, what's the telephone conference where you can you free can, conference call? Yeah, what, 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 they did that for a while, and uh, now it's on Facebook. Uh, but I've been back there three times, I think, since uh, things started opening up. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, but we're observing social distancing, and yeah, we, I mean, we, we, it's a brave new world. Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's going to be very, very interesting. Yeah. Sure. Um, any. Any final thoughts or any aha moments now that, you know, you've, you've been through so much and, and now you have the gift of, of hindsight, you have the gift of wisdom, you have the gift of, uh, you know, experience. Any, any words that, um, that you're called on to share on kind of where you're at, where we're at, where we're going? Gosh. Um. I would say as as far as pursuing musical artistry, whatever that is for us as players, writers, even producers, engineers, um, don't let, and I include myself at the head of this, don't let technology master me. I've uh, I've been guilty of that. It's easy to fall into it. Um, But when we use our God-given gifts of, of, writing or listening or uh, mixing or whatever it is that we're doing in music. Um, and we don't, we don't uh, become slaves to what, what it is we're trying to do. Um, things turn out better. Things turn out the way they're supposed to. Um, I also would encourage live participation as well as sequence or electronic uh, templates, Pro Tools, Logic, whatever, uh, because there's nothing that sounds like five or six people playing together other than five or six people playing together yeah. at the same time, I'm saying. Yeah. Um, now, you can make, great, make something great with five or six people one at a time. I'm not saying that otherwise. But there's something when, what happens when five or six people play together. It doesn't happen any other way. Uh, and that... That is always going to be the beauty to me. Well, I'm glad that technology is starting to catch up where that can be done real time. Yeah, yeah um, me too. Because that, I mean, the bandwidth necessary for that has got to be incredible. Oh, huge, yeah, global. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah. To, yeah, to be able to do that, because I was doing that a lot too at the, the end of my career uh, when I was working with Joe, we were, you know, I was mixing records that, you know, Joe played drums on and then he sent it out to the bass player and then he would yeah. you know, fix it up, do, do his parts and went to the guitarist and went to the keyboardist and the vocalist, put some stuff on, then they would yeah. send it back to do And, and yeah. you know, then it would come back and be like, I, well, we just sent like a drum track and, you know, with a, a couple of, you know, raw, you know, kind of markers. And then look at this incredible thing. Yeah. But again, it had that, that element of perfection. Yeah. Uh, where the you know the the flubs and the the little kind of humanity parts were missing. Yeah, um, yeah, and it definitely definitely makes a difference. Amen. Um, and you know what I thought of? Would you like a picture real quick of what? Well, yes, I, please. My console, is, my console is not up. Uh, it's it's usually at a forty degree angle up, and it's flat right now because we're still testing it. But I can show you real quick. <laughs> yeah, let's see your. Uh, Let's see your axes and oh there you go what uh what console is that um it's basically a, uh an adb uh toft audio okay and you're recording into pro tools yeah and logic um pro tools logic uh are the two softwares that i use let me get this back here. Uh, you know, Pro Tools and Logic. I usually, um, uh, I've got a. Uh, um, how many are all the other ones there? Uh, Links is what I use for converters. I was trying to. Um, but yeah, uh, Pro Tools is usually the hard disk stuff that I use. Um, do you use Logic? No, I, I still. I mean, I'm I'm not too much. I do all my overdubs. I still use Pro Tools. So if I'm doing any vocals or voiceovers, I just do it in, yeah, in Pro Tools. It's, it's simple. That's easy. a good standard. Yeah. Uh, that was my that was the main axe I learned and that was what I uh what I still, you know, do. I, I've ventured into a little I have logic. It's just it's so much deeper in many ways that it's it's oh, just yeah. too much too much machine for me. I don't need it and it, it distracts me and then I go down rabbit holes of like, ooh, what could that do? And then you know, four <laughs> hours cheap. later I, I'm yeah, like, oh, it'd be, man. It'd happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the library, the library stuff on on Logic is excellent. Um, yeah, Pro Tools is good, but library stuff is a little better. I think on Logic. Um, Read. I was trying to see anything that I've got interesting. I, I had a couple mo modules fail, but it wasn't because of the flood. Um, and you were okay with the the tornado? That didn't. It didn't affect me. Thank you, Lord. Uh, I'm in Ashland City, which is west of Nashville, uh, a little north, but basically west of Nashville, uh, about. Uh, 18, 20 miles. Okay. Um, I can I can be on Music Row in uh, 28 minutes, going the speed limit from my house. So you get there usually in what 12? <laughs> yeah, Highway <laughs> 12 and 12. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, brother, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, so great to catch up with you. Um, thank you. You I'm too. Sorry, brother. you're thank not you. playing with Linda Carter. I, I was hoping she'd be coming around again. Um, you will. I, well, but I was hoping to see you too. Uh, I'll probably come up there anyway. I'm, okay. not with her, but I'm thinking about taking a trip to New York to see some people anyway. I'll definitely call. Well, you're in Florida. That's I'm right. In Florida. Yeah. Yeah. You came, uh, you played the Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Whatever that, that place was. Uh, sadly, you know, I get everyone's got their new ways of making money. The first time I went and saw you, I believe was in California with you and Linda. Yeah. And I think it was. 
they had uh she didn't have her her uh her second revenue stream of meet and greets uh, oh, so yeah. I was able to come back and meet, you know, with you and her and all of that. And Heidi was so excited to get, you know, an opportunity to have, because, you know, Wonder Woman was one of her icons growing up. And, uh, you know, that was like, she was, that would have been, you know, like, I, I, I would have gotten lucky that night. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> uh, So maybe next time we can find a way to uh, sneak in. But um, it, it was always so great to, to see you. Your playing is always phenomenal. And, and uh, you. you know, obviously it was more important to see you than Linda. That was just, you know, kind of icing on the cake. Oh, I, but um, it, just so you've been such a, a an important person in my life and and i'm so blessed that you you still are around to oh, thank uh, you to share. thank you that's a fine i appreciate that thank you oh, dude it's my my privilege uh, so i love you for who you are and who you aren't if anyone <laughs> needs to get in touch with you how would they get in touch with you uh, uh my email is shane at shanekeister.com i got a website shanekeister.com shows uh uh, well, it shows that wonderful thing that you read, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but ShaneKeister.com gets me. Um, yeah. Oh. Call me, write me. Beautiful. Well, uh, I am, you know, just, again, so blessed and privileged to, to know you and, and call you a brother from another mother. And um, I definitely you. look forward to seeing you. Uh, Heidi and I are talking about getting up to Nashville anyway. So, of course, we're going to, to uh, you know, pester you oh, um, dude, but open door here always as you know thank you brother awesome thank brother you. well thank you so much and i uh, look forward to more of your adventures thank you i'll keep you posted when i get the book down you'll get the oh, first dude, copy we're all over it brother <laughs> thank you brother <laughs> right. a good day god bless Bye. you too thank you thank you so much for stopping by and hanging with us and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast right here and we look forward to serving you even more remember download your free guided hypnotic meditation at guidedhypnotic.com that's guidedhypnotic.com where you'll get your free anxiety busting meditation we look forward to serving you, and if you have any questions, comments, please feel free to reach out. All right, we love you for who you are and who you aren't. God bless.